Before we start today's show, we just wanted to share some exciting news with you all. We've launched our own Patreon page. Your donations will help with costs of producing and bringing you a show with better content such as on-site visits to prisons, prison phone calls, interviews, and much, much more. For only $6, you get a pros and cons sticker and pin, a Patreon-exclusive episode every month. This could be a Q&A, interview with a special guest, update to a previous case, and a shout-out on our social media and your name added to our website as a contributor. It also includes access to our private Slack group where you can get behind-the-scenes updates like upcoming episodes, inmate artwork sent to Bethany, and then you can just chat with us and other listeners. Head on over to www.patreon.com backslash mouthoffnetwork and select the pros and cons tier to become a patron today. This week on the pros and cons, we cover a case that went cold, was solved by an unusual sting operation, and even after the arrest, the twists and turns didn't stop. We're the pros and cons, two true crime television producers, Bethany Jones, that's me, and Adriana Padilla. With each episode, we talk to the pros that lived and worked the cases and about the cons that made headlines. And we also talk to them as well. Mm-hmm. We'd like to start off by thanking our new Patreon supporters. Thanks, guys. When you join our Patreon page, you are not only giving us the resources to bring us better quality episodes, but you also get to engage with us in a personal way. And talking to our fans is one of the more fun parts of this job. It's something we really enjoy doing. It is. It's really enjoyable. It's really nice to get to know you guys and to get to know what you like you know we had um jane who's a listener in the uk who sent us some really cool art so we'll give her a shout out um put that on uh, the page and she made me a really cool mermaid crown so it's just it's fun to get to know you guys and the cases you like and the shows you watch and you know, get to know you and your your personal lives a little bit. It makes us feel a little more connected. Also, we're part of a monthly get-together of yeah. true crime lovers called Macabre Mondays that um, is at Golden Road uh, in Glendale, and we do that the last Monday of every month. But not everyone is in the L.A. area, so for those who can't make it, we've recorded... Um, some of the sessions because we have Q and A's with 
um, you know, people, no, other people. Our first in the one, industry. yeah, our first one was with Paul Haynes, who is known as the kid from Michelle McNamara's hit book, "I'll Be Gone in the Dark." Yeah, and we're gonna make that interview available to our Patreon supporters. So. We also will be doing a big or larger, like, Southern California meetup with, you know, the Inland Empire, Riverside, San Diego, Orange County, um, at the Anaheim Golden Road Brewery location. So keep your eyes peeled for that date. And, you know, if you're not too far away, you know, you come on join by. us. Yeah. And, and if you, again, are not in the L.A. area, I will be recording some of these things and there's an opportunity to listen to them if you are a Patreon listener. Mm -hmm. So as always, um, the pros and cons is available on all the major podcast platforms and whether you listen to podcasts on TuneIn, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, we'll be there. And please remember to rate and review us. Um, rating and reviewing us helps other true crime fans find us. And um, it also keeps us on the iTunes charts, which we've, are, we're finally ranking on again. And it's been thrilling. And we've been ranking on it for a few weeks. So thank you guys so much, you know. So I was telling Bethany that I'm half dead on this, on this episode just because I'm coming to the the end of a, a true crime show. Yeah, it's the same. I'm going to wrap in a couple weeks and I feel as though my soul has left, left my body. Yeah, we just felt like oh. just because we're both kind of wearing sweats and like, yeah, basically. like 10 levels down where we usually are as far as personal grooming. I mean, I, I felt like it would be uh, interesting to just tell you guys about the process. I feel like with true crime shows, there's always this honeymoon period oh, yeah. in the beginning where everything is great. And as we enter like the end game of the true crime show, it, it always gets so I, much more difficult. I feel like it's one of those tough mutters where you're like, I'm going to run and I'm going to get and over the obstacles. And you think everything's good. And by, you know, when you're headed towards the finish line, you're just barely crawling along. It's like the night of the living dead. <laughs> uh, yeah. The thing is, is that not a lot of people realize, especially with true crime, there's so many different elements you have to take into account, like, you know, legal notes because you don't want to get sued and there's real people and their lives are at stake. So archival archival that has to come in and, you're dealing with like clerks and government agencies and and it's and and it can be draining de like being in this darkness all the time it's it's interesting it's fascinating we're in it but i mean i do think that it can give people or or weigh into depression and anxiety for some people yeah the the current show i'm on is about hate crimes and some it's, of the footage is so, so challenging. Challenging, yeah. I mean, remember, I don't know if you remember when I did that, it was like I could barely make it to the studio when yeah. I was on my hate crime show just because it was, it was just, it's tough. It's tough, man. I don't know, you know. Yeah, and, and I feel like we're in a really subjective um, business where, you know, you can tell a story one way, but it might 
not be correct. So yeah. it's kind of working with a, a big team, including with a network and kind of coming together to create something. Everyone is bringing a piece, but yeah. sometimes you have to do things over and over again. I know. And uh, yeah. Well, thanks for letting us uh, therapy with you guys today. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Ready. We'll keep our feelings to ourselves here. <laughs> I'm ready for like a juice cleanse and to go hiking for a bit. I need a massage. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe, hey, maybe if we have Patreon members in the area, we'll do a spa day with you. Um, <laughs> that said, let's do more crime. Let's do more crime. Crime all the time. I know. Um, so today's case, Adriana, it's been featured on many, many shows, but I don't think it's one that in the ecosystem of true crime stands out as a case that everyone recognizes. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's been featured on Forensic Files, Nightmare Next Door, Southern Fried Homicide, uh, unusual suspects and just before I came to work with you at CNN when we were kind of beginning our partnership mm-hmm. this was the case that I was kind of leaving and handing over to another producer but I stayed in touch and kind of lightly kept abreast of all the progress that was going on um, and so that's kind of why I wanted to cover it it's one of the weirdest stories I've ever done um, it's pretty harrowing, uh, talking about depression and anxiety, and it is the case of Stephanie Bennett. So the year is 2002. Stephanie Bennett moved to Raleigh, North Carolina with her girlfriends, Deanna and Emily, they had wanted to get a second story apartment. However, that wasn't available, so the girls took a first floor apartment. Their place was a three bedroom apartment on the first floor. Stephanie had a boyfriend, Walter. They had met in her freshman year at the University of Roanoke College. Walter would go on to say about meeting Stephanie She was beautiful. I was speechless. After graduating, Stephanie began processing grant applications for an IBM contractor. Walter would be in Greenville, South Carolina, and Stephanie would go visit him every weekend. She enjoyed shopping and playing board games with her roommates every night. By April 2002, Stephanie had decided to move to Greenville to be closer to Walter. Stephanie had so much promise, and she was well-liked, a good employee, and had a lot going for her. That's why the night of May 20th, 2002, would haunt Stephanie's friends and loved ones. Stephanie was home alone the night of May 20th. She had chatted on the phone to her roommates, Emily and Deanna, and also to the love of her life, Walter. The next day, she didn't show up for work, which was concerning because she had always been so responsible, punctual, reliable. So it was really out of character. Very, very out of character. And Walter had been trying to reach her, actually, to tell her or to get some information regarding the apartment 
they were going to move into in um, Greenville and she wasn't responding she wasn't responding to friends so the manager of the apartment complex was asked to go into the um, into the their apartment to do kind of a welfare check and when she walked in everything seemed fine there was nothing out of place nothing out of the ordinary everything looked just as it should and she went from bedroom to bedroom and in the third bedroom she opened the door and was confronted with the sight of Stephanie on the floor and uh, she called 911 it's a really harrowing 911 call you can hear how distraught she is and the police come She's unresponsive. They're you know, they're not able to revive her. And at the tender age of 23, with the promise of a great life ahead of her, Stephanie had been murdered. The police were quick to determine that this was a rape murder case. However, it was different than a lot of other rape murder cases or murder cases that these detectives had seen because inside the apartment there was very little disturbance there was no sign of a struggle hmm. um, and there was very obvious uh, ligature marks on the neck and um, the wrists and the ankles as though she had been bound however the cords weren't there they they weren't even in the apartment. It wasn't as though... So someone had taken the evidence. Someone had taken the evidence, yeah. Um, some There were some photos and stuffed animals that had been moved deliberately, almost like... the. I guess the best way I can describe it is it was lightly staged. Um, a cordless phone had been disconnected and moved into a closet... And only $8 and Stephanie's stereo, which really didn't have much value, had been taken by the, by the killer. The police canvassed the neighborhood, and this wasn't very fruitful. In fact, this only gave them a few clues. And, of course, the police always, as we all know, go to friends and family, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And... Everyone was willing to give up their DNA. Every, everyone had an alibi. Everyone gave up their DNA without question. And it didn't match the DNA found on her body. So very quickly, everyone was kind of ruled out, you know. So, And she was also so likable. It wasn't as though she had any kind of enemies. There wasn't anyone who had ill will or malice towards her. And this ultimately led to the case, you know, quickly kind of going cold. You know, sometimes you have a lot of suspects, you have a lot of avenues, but mm -hmm. all the avenues that they were able to examine quickly ruled people out and eliminated them as potential suspects. And the lead detective on this case knew very early on that it was going to be a hard case to crack. In an interview, he would later reveal that he felt that the person who did this crime was um, very likely to strike again. 
And this murder baffled the police. It stunned the community, leaving them bereft and in shock. You know, there were community members were leaving yellow ribbons and kind of flowers, memorials around town. And pe- people were very, very afraid. The case may have been rapidly going cold. However, with the canvassing of the neighborhood, the police were able to come up with one potential lead. Prior to Stephanie's death, a neighbor reported seeing a man crouching behind bushes and peering through Stephanie's window. The neighbor was also pretty sure that he had seen the same individual a short time later, but this time he had been walking a dog. And let's face it, saying it's a guy with a dog isn't exactly going to narrow down the police's search and focus. The detectives, determined to solve this case, began asking around the neighborhood. A composite sketch of the Peeping Tom did generate tips, but the tips went nowhere. By July of 2003, the police were still without suspects, so they made a choice to release information left at the crime scene. Sometimes law enforcement releases information and sometimes they hold back certain information. This is so when they have a suspect, they can test if they're giving them valid information or just information that's been released to the public. Do they have insider knowledge? Is this knowledge that only the killer would know? Absolutely. The police released that DNA indicated that the killer was white with 92% Indo-European heritage and 8% Native American heritage. Police also released a description of a person of interest. He had a thin build with light brown or blonde hair. He walked a large dog and was often seen wearing dark hooded sweatshirts. And then they got a hit. Someone anonymously tells them they should be looking at Drew Planton. The police speak to Drew and little did they know this initial interview was going to be used in a terrifying game of cat and mouse. Drew was antisocial and shy. He worked as a fertilizer technician for the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. He was very intelligent and a scientist. Detective Ken Copeland, who was known as the trash guy and able to look at cases in different ways, had come on to the case to help solve it and give it fresh eyes. And Ken knew that he was going to need a DNA sample from Drew. And that's just to eliminate him as a suspect. It's not even, you know, Drew's not hardly a person of interest at this point. But getting a sample was going to be tricky. When detectives first tried to approach Drew and explained that he was simply, you know, a person of interest, you kind of popped up on our radar, we'd like to go ahead and try and eliminate you as a suspect. Police had shown up at his apartment unannounced and unexpected. They hadn't rehearsed or planned what they were going to say. And Drew wasn't in. When he rounded the corner to enter his apartment, he sees the police and his expression darkens. Drew wouldn't let the police into his house 
and he tells the police that he needs to put his dog away and that he'd be right back out. So Detectives Copeland and Taylor stood outside Planton's door waiting for him. And Planton took so long that they wondered if he was actually going to come back. As the minutes stretched out, eventually Drew reemerges at the front door and he made it very, very clear the detectives were unwelcome guests. The interaction between Planton and the detectives was awkward, confrontational, and becoming a little bit more heated than just argumentative. So Drew had not only remembered their initial meeting from you know March of 2005, he had actually memorized everything that he had said to them. The detectives had kind of dug into Drew's background a little bit. And after this meeting where, you know, Drew was able to memorize everything that they'd said to him and kind of spit it back that his mother, who was an attorney, had given him notes, just, you know, guidance as you do to a loved one when you're kind of going through something. So the first time they came, he had talked to his mom about the meeting, and then his mother had given him some kind of legal note. That's what, yeah, that's kind of what they were thinking. And, you know, Drew, who was antisocial and shy and, you know, could barely make eye contact with anyone, the demeanor of that completely crumbled when the police were there, and the man with a rage problem appeared. So the police said that people have seen you by Bridgeport, which was a part of Raleigh. And Planton retorted, well, that's their opinion. And the detectives pressed Drew pretty hard. They said, no, that's a fact, not, not an opinion. Like if people are seeing you there, they're not, it's, they're not opining on it. And in a long shot, they asked Drew for a DNA sample. They just, right out of the gate, kind of blanketly asked him for it. And they explained to him that this is a way for them to eliminate him as a suspect. Um, and the detectives knew that this was a case that was only going to be solved through DNA because the killer had been so meticulous at the crime scene. You know, it wasn't like they'd left a kind of wealth of material for them to go through. But they or... did have DNA, though. They did have DNA, but I mm -hmm. mean, the... the. But there wasn't a lot of evidence left behind. Correct. Yeah, that's what I was... Um, yeah. And um, Drew refused. He just flat out said that he knew the police would twist it and use it against him. He wasn't going to give it up. And detectives Copeland and Taylor looked Drew square in the eye and they said, you've just graduated from being a person of interest to a suspect. And we're going to be looking at you, looking at you closely. And now that you're a suspect, there's a whole lot more that we can do. Not to be dissuaded by this encounter or by the fact they don't have a DNA sample from Drew yet, the police continued on. Detectives reached out to Drew's supervisor, Joanne Riley. Now, detectives were taking a huge risk. What if Joanne was actually friends with Drew and tipped him off? This could unravel the case. 
Joanne was stunned when she learned that Drew was being investigated for murder. Joanne described Drew as painfully shy, with big green eyes, and so thin that co-workers and peers would bring Drew food. Yeah. Police decided that they don't have time to lose ground. Their case desperately needs to be solved. When they called Joanne, who was cooperative but uncomfortable, Drew could have walked into her office at any moment. Mm-hmm. And if he heard her talking to police about the case, who knows what peril that could have put Joanne in. And she didn't believe that he could have done this. She thought, oh, my God, I need to help the police. So my coworker, who I'm so fond of, is going to be eliminated as a suspect. I think everyone likes to think they're a really good judge of character. And she thought, wow, I'm going to go above and beyond and help in this way. And at the same time, it'll help my coworker. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and the detectives are respectful that they're essentially using a citizen detective to work the case. And they began emailing back and forth. The police came to Joanne and explained that out of 246 suspects, that's right, 246, Drew Planton was the only one to consistently lie to police, and he had refused to give a DNA sample. I mean, talk about putting yourself at the top of the suspect list. Exactly. Joanne wasn't immediately swayed to thinking Drew was guilty. She knew his mother was an attorney, And knowing his personality could see how Drew could be OCD about wanting to police to do everything above the board, you know, get a warrant before handing a DNA sample. Like he wasn't an easygoing guy. Actually, most people should be that way. And And he's a scientist, you know, and he knows DNA. He understands this. So they just suspect that he just wants police to do their due diligence. Yeah, she thinks he's not going to just hand over his DNA. She thinks he's being awkward and difficult, but not criminal. Detective Copeland asked Joanne if she would help them. He asks if there's anything that would eliminate Drew as a suspect. Joanne had remembered Stephanie's smiling face on the evening news and how devastated the community had been by her murder. She couldn't help but want to cooperate with police, if only to have Drew eliminated as a suspect and to help bring the real killer to justice. Joanne had told the detectives what a great employee and worker Drew was. And she actually went ahead and went to Human Resources to try and pull Drew's employee records and timesheets. She told them... He's punctual, he's on time, and she pulled them, and she went ahead and pulled the timesheet from the week of Stephanie Bennett's murder, and Joanne suddenly felt this pang in her heart, this surge of anxiety and distress. The day after Stephanie's murder, Drew had come to work an hour late. For the first time, Joanne had to really consider, could Drew be responsible for this murder that had haunted the town? Joanne told herself, listen, you're not a detective or an investigator. You need to do what they ask of you and let the detectives put the pieces of this puzzle together. 
The clock is racing and the pressure is on for the detectives to solve the case. The detectives had spoken to Stephanie's dad and promised him that they were not going to let this go. And um, I mean, it's it's awful when anyone is taken from the world in this way. But Stephanie was so sweet and so connected to her family, you know, that you just the pain the family was in was it's visceral. I don't know how else to say it. And they really, you know, the detectives really didn't want to risk Drew possibly leaving and just going in the wind. September 2005, detectives receive a promising email from Joanne that they felt was really going to help usher the investigation along. Joanne tells them of an upcoming company luncheon. It was the end of fertilizer season luncheon that was to be held at the Golden Corral. The detectives put the plan in motion quickly, and they chose to have two plainclothes officers go to the luncheon. And it wasn't the detectives, um, Copeland and Taylor, because obviously Drew had had face-to-face interaction with them. So they so were... it was colleagues, yeah. Yeah, police that he wouldn't recognize. Correct. Um, and so Joanne knew of this. So she's really enmeshed in this investigation. You know, she herself is becoming a, a key component. And they said, look, just act naturally. Don't bring attention or, or awareness that anything or anyone is out of the ordinary. Now, when you're doing undercover work, guess what? You blend in. So she didn't know who they were even. Now, Drew had notably never eaten at his desk at work. He'd never left DNA there. They'd, to the point, they had never even found a hair on his desk. He was meticulous in cleaning. And so... Which is pretty rare because a lot of times in these kind of cases, it, you know, they'll leave a glass or they'll leave a piece of tissue and that's how the DNA will be found. Do you know how involved this Planton guy was, Adriana? He wouldn't throw things away in public trash cans because they had trailed him. And he would have a water bottle, you know, finish it. He wouldn't throw it in the trash because the police had hoped he would throw it in the trash and then it's in you know, the a public receptacle and they don't need a warrant for it. Yes. Which is, which is very a common. common. And this guy is so thorough. He's not, which I mean, yeah, you would think that weird. he would, you know, have a cup of coffee and throw away his Starbucks cup and just think about all the trash we leave behind. It's very rare that this guy, you know, was leaving nothing behind. Nothing. Um, so at this luncheon, what the detectives were hopeful for is he would take, you know, a knife or a fork or leave a glass. And Drew notably was only eating foods that did not require cutlery or silverware, finger foods, fries, a cheeseburger, things he could just pick up with his hands. He did, however, use a straw. And he would take the straw and put in his in his pocket every single time he left the table. So he wasn't leaving it there. He wasn't leaving it for anyone to pick up. He blew his nose into a napkin and the undercover detectives thought, oh my gosh, now we can get it. 
no, no. Drew also put that in his pocket, which is kind of gross because he's hoarding all these back- used tissue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the end of the meal is approaching and banana pudding is being served. And the detectives are like, well, how the heck are you going to eat banana pudding without a fork? And he does. He takes a fork finally and he has a couple of small bites and the police are like, yes, this is it. Well, Drew goes to the bathroom and the police follow him surreptitiously Drew's in the bathroom, busy flushing down the straw, the napkins he blew his nose into, and anything with DNA down the toilet. So nothing could be retrieved. Nothing's in a trash can. Nothing's left behind. And he had tried wiping down the fork he'd used to take a bite. The plainclothes detective quickly grabbed the fork after Drew had left, not knowing if this would have enough DNA on it or how helpful it could be after being wiped down and gets it to Copeland who was delighted that finally they had something with Planton's DNA on it. It was the bread pudding. That's what got him. Banana pudding. It'll get you every time. So Planton takes the fork. He goes to his friend at the lab and he says, please put a rush on it. He could since the walls were closing in on his suspect and Joanne's always petrified if he learns that she's the Judas that, you know, is giving him this kiss, what would happen to her? How would she live with herself? You know, it's, it goes on and on and it's just a really challenging position to be in. And Copeland was so certain that this fork was the, smoking gun so to speak he goes as far as to send an email to joanne saying that you will remember this day forever and when the results came come back from the lab it would shock everyone when the lab results come back they were inconclusive yep there was other dna on the fork so it couldn't be used to compare to the DNA sample that was left behind at the crime scene. The police were so disheartened. How on earth were they going to get this guy's DNA? And it's kind of gross to think there's other DNA on the fork. It's like the fork wasn't washed properly. That's why there were other people's DNAs on there. Well... You know, it just ruined their whole plan. And after this daring sting um, and Drew Planton was not a stupid man. He was educated. He was a scientist and he was well aware how to keep his DNA safe from police. And obviously he had an inkling that they were after him. Well, yeah, I mean, they've shown up at his door and and has watched enough CSI to know that, you know, that's how. That's how you you can get it. And that's when a Hail Mary creative idea was born. Joanne went to Planton and asked him to conduct a test at work that required him to wear latex gloves. That night, the detectives got into the office and retrieved the latex gloves and waited with bated breath for the results. When the results came back, it was a match. The police went and got their guy. 
Drew Planton was arrested two days later after the DNA match on October 19, 2005, three years after Stephanie's death, a question mark that had haunted the community was being turned into a period. Prosecutors wasted no time in seeking the death penalty in this case. When Drew was brought into court, he wasn't only uncooperative, he was unresponsive. He was so catatonic that he had to be wheeled in on a gurney. He literally, Adriana, it looked like something out of Hannibal Lecter. Did he have the little face mask? He didn't have the face mask, but his hair is messy. It looks super greasy at the roots. And his eyes were closed most of the time, but he's strapped into this chair that looks like it's something out of some kind of insane asylum. Well, the theory was that this was a technique kind of going internal yeah. that he had learned as a child when his father abused him. Now, when we were producing this, we didn't really get into the abuse. Um, that wasn't really brought up. It wasn't really discussed. So unfortunately, we don't really have much more information on that or his family life. You but know? it was something that was brought up. Yeah. In the media, and the court that... E correct, yeah. You are right. Then there's an even more shocking discovery. Drew had moved to Raleigh in 2000 and had previously lived in Michigan. When the police searched his house, they ended up finding a gun. And it was none other than a gun used in another unsolved case, the murder of exotic dancer Rebecca Huseman. The police weren't dealing with a sexual predator and murderer. They had a serial killer on their hands. However, in spite of the strong evidence, the case would not go to trial. January 2nd, 2006, Drew was found dead by suicide in his jail cell. He had hung himself. His death left unanswered questions for so many. Had he had other victims? He never gave any reason or explanation for why he did what he did. It's just, you know, overall, this this mystery of a case. So when you were producing this, what mm -hmm. were some of the stories or some of the things you learned? So one of the things that I had learned was while the police were chasing down the peeping Tom, um, you know, kind of early on in the case they ended up finding women who or people who had lived in the Lakeland apartments and they found one woman who had moved to New York and she had moved because she was so freaked out by a peeping Tom that had been looking in her apartment that she'd just like up and left and she was talking to them, describing him, discussing her experience and she just burst into tears and hung up the phone. And it's such, this is such a weird case because you have all these different people talking about this um, peeping Tom. And one of the detectives has said, not every peeping Tom becomes a serial rapist or murderer, but every murderer and not every murderer, but every, um, every, rapist has got some kind of peeping tom tendency 
So it's kind of like their gateway. It kind of is, but it's strange because some peeping toms will never graduate to more heinous crimes, according to this detective. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of like the Golden State Killer. Yeah, yeah. It's it's strange because it's like you don't want to over you don't want to say definitely like oh well if you are a peeping tom then you you know you're gonna become a sexual assault like that makes me uncomfortable to be that definite and but- it's such a hard thing I know that having talked to other women it's so hard to get those kind of cases to get any attention usually police just come take a police report you know and that's Correct. what you're left with. So I can understand why that one witness was so upset. Yeah, it really upset her. People in the community were really upset. Another big interesting, or in my opinion, an interesting factor in this is a lot of murders aren't stranger danger. And this is classic stranger danger. Stephanie is the most innocent of victims. She's done nothing wrong. She was, you know... Living a safe and secure life, it wasn't as And though... she didn't know him as well? No. Yeah. He no th- intersections? No. they. I mean, he had lived in, in and around the Lakeland apartments, but it wasn't as though they had interactions themselves, you know? She had no reason to be concerned or worried about him. And so that it freaked me out when I began producing this because I was like, holy cow, like, who's in my neighborhood? You know what I mean? Like... I need to do it. I need to Lexus Nexus everybody, but I don't know any of my neighbors because I'm unfriendly. So, <laughs> you know, one of the things though is that it it statistically it is very low that you will have something like what happened to Stephanie happen to you. But Correct. I find that when we do true crime shows that are about kidnapping or when I did the Golden State Killer, yeah, it's just you start to see shadows everywhere and. You're, you're, the depression and anxiety I talked about, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's real. It's real. Like uh, it can happen. You can it, it definitely makes you more aware. It definitely does. And it, I think it definitely can weigh on you. So, um, you know, the, it, one thing that was funny and um, there's several Reddit threads that kind of go into potential other unsolved cases. You know, did Drew have other victims and Drew's brother himself had a blog at one point discussing whether his brother is a serial killer and that's still up online. Like you can go find it and, you know, check that out. And probably the lightest part of producing this is earlier this year, I had gone to um, Orange County um, with a girlfriend of, of mine and we'd like had this long day. We'd done a lot of walking. We were so hungry. And you know what I'm like when I'm hungry. It's like, yes. Okay. I've been there. And she goes, look, why don't we just go to Golden Corral? And I was like, hold on. I have a 40 minute story about a case to tell you why we can't go eat at Golden Corral. And she was <laughs> like, what? I just like went on and on. And finally she was like, so just where do we stand on Golden Corral? I was like, yeah, there was a case where they couldn't solve it with DNA because there was multiple people's DNA on the fork. She was like, say no more. We're not going there. <laughs> I hadn't put that two and two together. Yeah. yeah. That was. Oh, Golden we... Corral. I mean, but they have that chocolate fountain, though. All right. Well, now you got me back in. You... I mean, maybe the forks aren't the cleanest. 
so but like, they've got like a to, chocolate fountain. Just, like a weirdo, I need to bring my own like utensils. Just bring your own tong for the chocolate oh. fountain. So that was the lightest part of producing the case was me, you know, years later telling a friend in a really awkward way about why we couldn't um, go eat at Golden Corral. But it was a really sad case. I think, you know, you saw this girl who had a lot of promise. She didn't do anything wrong. And I'm not trying to say other victims do, but I mean, she really had gone out of her way for safety. And there was no reason for this. And I think it's very unfair that Drew Planson did what he did. And I think it's very unfair because the whole town was terrorized by it. They were very afraid, very fearful. And I think Joanne Riley is really kind of a hero in all of this, you know, had she not kind of put herself on the line and allowed herself to be in an uncomfortable situation, who knows where this guy could have graduated to in terms of levels of violence. And, um, you know, maybe he was the next golden state killer. It kind of seems that way to me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for everyone tuning in again to the pros and cons. You can get in touch with us in several ways. You can email us at the pros and cons podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us at the pros and cons show on Twitter and the pros and cons podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. And please remember to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or your favorite Android app. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. All right. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Before we sign off, I just wanted to tell you about a new podcast I'm executive producing called The Intersection of Cancer and Life. It is hosted by my dear friend, Emily Garnett, who was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in November 2017. Emily and her guests discuss the changes, challenges, and unexpected shifts that have occurred while living with cancer. These conversations emphasize the fact that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to rebuilding a life after diagnosis, and lets listeners know that they are not alone. Whether they themselves have been diagnosed with cancer or have a friend or loved one navigating treatment. You can listen to the first season now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast app by searching for The Intersection of Cancer and Life.